Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace mercifully speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. That's the colic for today, the colic for the third Sunday of Advent. It's a great colic. Stir up thy power, O Lord. Isn't that what we're asking him to do? Is stir up his power and come among us, especially during this season of Advent. Well, we are continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles with you, you want to open up to Matthew chapter 7 this morning as we continue to make our way through what is, I think, beyond the shadow of the doubt, the greatest sermon ever delivered by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And uh, we come here in Matthew chapter 7 to sort of a breaking point in this sermon. Uh, it should surprise us um, in no way, really, that given the fact that this sermon was delivered by Jesus and given the fact that he really was the greatest preacher, uh, we shouldn't be surprised then that this is a sermon, and you notice this when you get to the seventh chapter, that is extremely well organized. Uh, when I was in college, um, we had a professor who was a, a Christian, and um, he, would, he was the sponsor for one of the Christian organizations on campus, and uh, he would invite students over to his house uh, every Sunday afternoon for dinner, which was a blessing for those of us who were forced to eat cafeteria food the other days of the week. And so uh, everybody was hopeful to get an invitation. It also helped that he had a very attractive daughter. So um, uh, all of the boys in particular were hoping to get invitations to this professor's house. But there was a price to be paid. Um, you realize that if you got invited uh, to this professor's house, that you were going to be grilled at the lunch table, at the dinner table. Uh, he was going to ask you where you went to church, and he was going to ask you what the sermon was about. And um, most of us um, were going to church, um, you know, from time to time as the Spirit moved us. Um, but one of the things was interesting to listen to people try and describe the sermon that they had heard. And you could tell whether the sermon was a well-organized sermon or not. Uh, some people could tell you exactly what the theme of the sermon was. Other people would sort of tell you, well, I'm not quite sure what the sermon was about. Have you ever been in a church where you come out and you're wondering to yourself, I'm not quite sure really what that was all about? Well, that is not unusual. In fact, I always tell the clergy, um, the clergy where I was before, that as they prepare a sermon, everybody should be able to follow the thread. Uh, if the sermon is well organized, you should be able to follow the thread. It should start with a point, and you should be able to follow that thread right through to the end. So that if you're having a lunch conversation after church and somebody asks you, what is the sermon all about? You, the, whoever the listener is, should be able to tell them exactly what the point was. What was the take-home message for the day? Uh, that's how you can tell if a sermon has been well-ordered, well-prepared. It shouldn't just be sacred musings with Father so-and-so. Uh, somebody said that some sermons are a lot like an, an airplane. That they start off okay, but then they sort of circle in the fog, and they never quite land. And um, one of the things that we could say about Jesus' sermon is that the Lord was such a great preacher uh, that you can follow his thread, you can follow his theme, and you can see his points as they are 
developed. And that's where we are here in Matthew chapter 7. If you take a look at the first three chapters up to this point of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that you will notice is that Matthew chapter 5, and you see it up there on the screen, is an emphasis on the kingdom of God and its implications. We said that the Sermon on the Mount is really not prescriptive, it is descriptive. What is Jesus doing? He is describing what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. He's not telling us if you do these things, you'll become a citizen of the kingdom of God because citizenship in the kingdom is a matter of God's grace. It's not a matter of works. But what he is telling us is that if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you can compare it to what I'm describing here in Matthew chapter 5, and you'll know whether or not you are walking in step with the Spirit. So chapter 5 really is a description of what the kingdom of God looks like and what its implications are. Chapter 6 emphasizes the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God as, all, as well as the kingship of God. Uh, this is a kingdom. There is obviously going to be a king. And in chapter 6, um, Jesus is emphasizing the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. But he's also emphasizing to us that while God is the king, he is one who is deeply concerned for us. If we are citizens of the kingdom, then we are also members of the royal family. We have been adopted into the family of God. And we said that in the ancient world, when a person was adopted into the family of God, there was no way that they could ever be thrown out. Now, according to Roman law, you could actually disinherit your natural children. But if you made that conscious decision to adopt a child, that child you could not disinherit. Well, that's good news for you and for me, because the Gospel of John makes it very clear that if we are children of God, that is not by nature, that is not by our birth, it is by the new birth. And therefore, we have been adopted by God, and having been adopted by God, we never need to fear that we are ever going to be disinherited. So that's what the emphasis is on chapter 6. Well, when you get to chapter 7, there's a slightly different emphasis. Uh, in, in the days of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, sermons always had four points. They used to refer to Spurgeon's great four-pointers. Uh, in a previous age, in the age of the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards and the like, they would oftentimes have multiple points and then even sub-points. Um, but of course, we have to remember that was in a day when people weren't distracted. It wasn't a soundbite society where everything had to be given to you in little pieces. So people were accustomed to listening. As we've gone down through the ages, people have a harder time concentrating. And so what started off as perhaps six and seven point sermons with subpoints turned into the great four pointers of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I think today, the most that most people can probably grasp hold of is about a three point sermon. Well, here we have multiple points in this sermon as well. And the third point in Jesus' well-organized sermon emphasizes the judgment of God and its impact on our lives. Remember, Jesus is giving us a holistic picture here. He's telling us that the God we Christians worship is the King. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is also our Father, but we must never forget that He is the judge. Because He is the King, He is going to bring justice and equity to the world. Isn't that what we say every Sunday when we stand and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed? What do we say? And we believe that He will come again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead, depending upon which version you use. 
Now, of course, the judgment of God is a terrifying thing to many people. Many people don't like to think about judgment. Uh, That is very politically incorrect. Uh, Maybe I've told you this story some years ago when I was at Virginia Seminary. I uh, had to take classes at Catholic University. And right across the street from Catholic University is this great church, uh, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, I think there are two great churches that if you go to Washington, D.C., you absolutely must see. One, of course, is the National Cathedral, which is actually the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Saints Paul. It's the, um, it's the great cathedral for the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. Great Gothic cathedral, one of the last great Gothic cathedrals ever built. Well worth seeing. The other is this National Shrine of the Basilica of the Na- the Basilica of the, N- the National Shrine of the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But it's totally different from the National Cathedral, which is Gothic. It's Byzantine in its style of architecture. And it's covered with mosaics. Uh, thousands, literally thousands of tiny little tiles that come together to form these magnificent images. And the most impressive image in this basilica is right above the high altar. And it shows Christ. It's enormous. It shows Christ seated in majesty. And he's got a crown on his head. He's got a scepter in one hand. He's got an orb in the other. And there's lightning and thunderclouds rolling in behind him. And it's amazing to stand there and look up at this. It's right over the high altar. It covers the whole area over the high altar in the apse. And it's fascinating to hear people as they come by and they look up at that to hear their responses. It's generally one of two things that they say. They either say, oh, that is awesome. Or they say, that is terrifying. And you know, when it comes to the judgment of God, I think generally those are the two responses that most people have. Either this is an awesome idea, an awesome concept, an awesome thought, or it is what? It is absolutely terrifying. And depending upon where or how you respond depends on where you are in terms of your relationship with God. Listen, the scripture is very clear. He is coming back to judge. I think I've told you before, history can be divided basically into three parts. The first part, the first segment of history is that period between the fall and the coming of the long-promised Messiah, the one who was promised back in the book of Genesis. That the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. That's the first segment of history. The second segment of history is that period between the Messiah's arrival and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the second segment. Now, you'll notice those segments are not equal in length. The second segment was relatively brief, about 33 years. The third segment of history is that period between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. How long will that segment be? We don't know. All we do know is the next event is the main event. Christ will return in glory, and he will return in glory to do what? To judge the quick and the dead. Now, is it going to be awesome? Or is it going to be terrifying? It all depends upon where you stand in relationship to God. Listen, judgment is not always a bad thing, folks. In a world of injustice, in a world of cruelty, in a world of sin, you and I as human beings crave justice. So there has to be a judgment at some point. 
But listen, judgment is only a bad thing if what? Well, we all deserve it. It's only a judgment. It's only a bad thing if the judgment is against you. If somebody takes you to court and you go through the length of a trial and at the end the judge declares you innocent before the law, is that a day of condemnation or a day of vindication? It's a day of vindication, you say. So for the Christian... The coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to judge the living and dead is not a bad thing. It is the thing we hope for. It is the day of vindication. It is that day when God sets this broken, fallen world right. Everything that is foul, everything that is broken, everything that is dishonest is set right again. It's going to be, for the Christian, an awesome day. Now, if you're fearful that it's going to be terrifying for you, then let me encourage you to go and talk to one of the clergy, in all seriousness. Because we don't want you to live in fear of the judgment of Christ. We want you to look forward to that as a glorious day. And it's as simple as placing your faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that you're a sinner, and placing your faith in Him and His shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. But here, in Matthew chapter 7, that is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to begin to unpack the judgment of God. A very real theme, and one that you and I have to pay attention to. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say here in this third point of this well-organized sermon. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The Lord says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under feet and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What Jesus wants us to do here, again, is to self-examine. Uh, the whole point of this sermon is for us to take a good look at our lives and to ask ourselves, am I living in accord with the description that Jesus is giving here? If you have any doubts as to whether or not you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, here's the picture. 
Hold yourself up to this picture and judge for yourselves. Don't worry about anybody else. Judge yourselves lest you be judged. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, take a look at what you have here of the description and measure your life by it. Here in these first five verses of chapter 7, Jesus is hoping that we will be able to see ourselves more clearly. One of my favorite short stories is a picture of Dorian Gray. You probably know the story. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray is really a horror story. It's the story of a young man who um, has a portrait painted of himself. And uh, it is a magnificent portrait. Uh, and in fact, it's so impressive that Dorian basically falls in love with himself. He's a narcissist. And he makes a deal with the devil. And the deal is this, that he will never grow old. That he will always be as young in life as he looks in that portrait. Now that's the deal that he makes with the devil. Well, what happens? Well, the devil takes the deal. And Dorian never ages. But having sold himself to the devil, he then begins this downhill spiral in life. He begins to live all kind, do all kinds of terrible things, live a licentious and wicked and evil life, and he uses people. And yet people are drawn to him. There's something about him that's, that's, that's mysterious about Dorian Gray. He becomes wealthy, he becomes powerful. And the creepiest thing about the guy is that he never ages. You ever know people like that? They're like Dick Clark, just never sort of aged, you know? I mean, just always the same, year after year. He's hosting the parade, and you're like, same guy, what is this? But that's the way it was with Dorian Gray. He never aged. But he used people. He, he killed people. He abused women. But here was the problem. Though he never aged, with each terrible act, each sin in his life, he didn't age, but the portrait did. The portrait aged. And every time he looked at it, he would see himself as he really was. Not as he imagined himself to be. And it became so terrifying, so horrible over the course of the years, that eventually what he did was he put a drape over the portrait. So he no longer had to look at himself as he really was. Now how does the story end? You'll have to read it on your own to figure it out. It's a fascinating story. But every now and then, Dorian couldn't help but come in and pull back the curtain and see what he had become. What Jesus is challenging us to do here in Matthew chapter 7 is to pull back the drape and take a good hard look at our lives to see what we have really become, not what we imagine ourselves to be. No, to, not to, no long, to no longer cloak it, to no longer put a drape over our lives so that we appear to be something other than that which we are. Instead, he encourages us to pull back that drape and see ourselves. To see if, in fact, as he says in verse 5, whether or not we have become a hypocrite. We've already talked about what that word hypocrite here means. Pokritos in the Greek, it means to wear a mask. Are we wearing a mask? Ask yourself that question. Am I wearing a mask today? You know, most of us do. 
truth be known, most of us put up a facade. We wear a mask because we are fearful that if we are fully known, we will not be fully loved. Isn't that the case? We are actually fearful that if we are fully known, we will not be fully loved. And most of us keep secrets and even put up a facade in front of those closest to us. Let's be honest. There are some things that not even your spouse knows. There are those thoughts, those dreams, whatever they may be, that not even your spouse knows. And what Jesus is challenging us to do is to pull back that curtain and see ourselves for what we really are. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Wonderful parable. Jesus, as you know, frequently taught the crowds in parables. Let me give you a little bit of insight about parables. Parables are simple stories drawn from real life that at most have one or two points to them, one or two take-home messages. Uh, Too many people get hung up on on every aspect of the parables, and if they do, they miss the forest for the trees. Uh, Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Uh, What did he do? He squandered his inheritance in loose living, and we're told that he ended up living with the pigs and even desiring the pods that the pigs ate. Well, many people throughout the centuries have tried to pick apart every aspect of that story. What is the significance of the pigs? What is the significance of the pods? What's the significance of this? And you missed the point. Parables are simple stories. They're meant to convey one or two simple messages. But they're meant to do it in a very powerful way. And this is one of the most effective right here. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off and not even lifting up his eyes to heaven, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, in this first century context, this would have been a shocking parable, especially for the way that it ends. Because in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the latter, went down to his house justified. And we've talked about what the word justified means here. It means to be in a right standing with God. It means to be lined up with God. If you do word processing and you go to the top and you blacken in everything that you've written and you hit the justified button, what happens? The margins line up. In many of your Bibles, you'll see that your margins are lined up. They're flush. To be justified, in a sense, is to be lined up with God. And Jesus said, which one of these men do you think went down to his house lined up with God? The one who was the tax collector, who was an extortioner, who worked for the Romans? 
Or this Pharisee who, who was a religious man, who showed up for church every single Sunday, who paid his tithe on time. Which one do you think went down to his house justified? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it was the latter, not the former. It was the tax collector who acknowledged that he was a what? A sinner. One stood looking up to heaven. One would not even raise his head, but beat his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. One refused to pull back the drape, folks. One was willing to pull back the drape, see what he was, and acknowledge it before the Lord. And the result was that he went down to his house justified. Where are you in this? Where are you? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Some years ago at St. Helena's, when I, I got there and I'd been teaching for about two years, I had a lady who was a lifelong Episcopalian, lifelong member of that congregation, and she came up to me and she said, you know, until your predecessor got here, I didn't even know that I was a sinner. She said, now you're here, and I realize I'm a miserable sinner. <laughs> do we see ourselves like that? Do we? Or do those words sort of roll off our tongue, those wonderful words of morning prayer? Miserable offenders. You know, the wonderful thing about the liturgy is if you listen to those words, they're shocking, they're jarring in a politically correct culture where most of us have been brought up to believe that we're respectable people. Jesus says, pull back the drape for a time. It's one of the reasons why I love that prayer of humble access. Right before we go to communion, we are not worthy so much as to what? Gather up the crumbs under thy table. We are not worthy. Now, you can always take this to the extreme and say, well, I'm unworthy, I'm just a worm and no man, I'm just a miserable offender, and that can lead you to hopelessness and despair. But what's the next line in that prayer of humble access? We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is sometimes... Always to have mercy. What good news is that? Not sometimes, not 50% of the time, not when he's having a good day, he's going to have mercy on you. It is his property always to have mercy. But he cannot have mercy on you unless you what? Acknowledge that you're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under his table. Because if you think you are worthy, you have no need of mercy. No need of grace. No need of pardon nor forgiveness. Jesus wants us here in Matthew chapter 7 to see ourselves clearly. This is designed to be a corrective lens. He wants us to see ourselves clearly. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the two-by-four in your own? So Jesus wants us to see life clearly. This is a corrective lens. He wants us to see ourselves for what we really are. But... Once we begin to see ourselves for what we really are, he also wants us to begin to see others 
and to have no illusions about this. No illusions about what? About the fallen nature of human beings. So often in life, we get disappointed by other people. How many of you have ever been disappointed by another person in your life or a group of people? And generally, it's why. It's because you expected more from them than they were capable of giving. That's generally the case in life. We are more often than not disappointed by other people because we have expected more of them than they are capable of giving. That's why Jesus starts out, take a good look at yourself. If you realize that you're a sinner, that you're broken, and you're fallen, that means you're going to disappoint other people. Why should you think that they're not sinners too? That's why I always say to people, please don't put me on a pedestal. You know, clergy sometimes get placed on a pedestal, but I can tell you, we are sure, sooner or later, the honeymoon will be over. <laughs> sooner or later, I'm going to disappoint you. So don't place your faith and your hope and your confidence either in yourself or, Jesus goes on to say, in other people. Look, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is talking about us. Don't worry about the speck in somebody else's eye. Worry about the two by four in your own. But in the very next verse, verse 6, he says, but be aware of other human beings as well, that they're imperfect too. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 7 and flip over just a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the twelve, and he's sending them out into the world to preach the gospel. And they probably went out very excited about the prospect, but Jesus warned them as they went out what they could expect to see in the world. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are first Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Who is worthy in it? Now, you might say, on the one hand, well, nobody's worthy. Isn't that Jesus' whole point? Well, when he talks about worthy, he means those who are receptive. Those who are receptive to your message. And if the house is receptive, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not receptive, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
For truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus is saying, understand, the gospel message is a message for broken people. The church is for who? Righteous people? Church is nothing but a hospital for sinners, folks. If you are healthy, if you are spiritually healthy and well, go someplace else next Sunday. This is a place for the sick. Jesus said, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but to what? To save sinners. This is a place for the broken. And so when Jesus says He's sending them out, He's sending them out with the Gospel. What's the Gospel? The Gospel is the good news of forgiveness of sins for broken, messed up people like you and me. Not people who have managed to get their acts together or pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but broken, fallen, wicked people who acknowledge that they have pulled back the curtain, they've seen what they are, and they've gone to God asking for mercy saying we're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but we know that you are the same God whose property is always to have mercy. Have mercy on me. And he said, if that message has changed your life, then you know that is a message that other people need to hear. But you're going to go out into the world and proclaim that message, and not everybody's going to like it. Who likes to be told that they're a wretch? Who likes to be told that they're a sinner? Who likes to be told that they are not acceptable to God as they are? He said some people will find that message very disheartening, very discouraging, and they will react against it. We're seeing that in our culture, aren't we? Most people want to believe in the inherent goodness of people. I mean, that's what we believe. Don't, how, if I, were, I don't want to see a show of hands because I don't want to have to correct you. But if I were to ask you today, just ask your question, if you think that people are basically good or basically evil, how many of you would say basically good? I think most of us do. We, we, we want to, we you know, how did Johnny Mercer say? Accentuate the positive. And that's what we want to do. We want to we think the best about people. But that's not the picture we get in Scripture. God had to send Jesus Christ into this world to mount the arms of the cross, to be crucified, to be nailed there, to be rejected. Not because we're good people. Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, who was, you know, bishop of this diocese uh, for many years and was a professor before that at Virginia Theological Seminary, used to sit on the board of examining chaplains. And um, you had to take what were known in those days as the general ordination exams, or like the, the comprehensive law exams. Three years of graduate education in theology, church history, ethics, whole nine yards. And at the end, in order to be ordained, you had to take a whole week, a whole battery of tests. And he was one of the examiners. And let me tell you, that, that was tough, because uh, he, he was a tough examiner. But I remember him telling the story about the best answer that he'd ever had on the question of the atonement, the question of Jesus' death on the cross. What is the meaning of the atonement? What is the meaning of the cross? What is the meaning of the, the doctrine of redemption? And he said, oh, people would write 20 pages trying to impress the reader. He said, the best one I ever had, the best answer, and he said he got the highest grade I could give, was somebody who had drawn 
a picture. And it was just two stick figures. One was a stick figure of Jesus on the cross, and one was a stick figure of a man on the ground, and bubbles coming out with words. And Jesus was saying from the cross, if you're okay, and I'm okay, what am I doing up here? If you're okay, and I'm okay, why am I suffering like this? See, Jesus suffered because you're not okay, and I'm not okay. As somebody once said, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So he paid a debt he didn't know that you and I might go free. So Jesus says, don't place your hope or your confidence in yourself, but at the same time, don't place your hope or your confidence in other people, in their goodness. Because he said they are sure to disappoint you. Turn for just a moment to John chapter 2, verse 20, Verse 24. Verse 23 is where we'll start. 24 is the critical verse, but in John chapter 2, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry according to John. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Why did they believe in Jesus? Not because of the words that he was preaching, but because of the what? The signs that he was doing. And in John's gospel, signs is just another word for the miracles. So they were impressed with the miracles. How did Jesus respond to that? People were believing in Him. They were awed. They were enamored. He was telling them that. And they were telling people anyway. But what's interesting is they're enamored. What was Jesus' response? If somebody is enamored with you, generally how do you respond to that? Most of us like that. Most of us like to be liked. But verse 24 says, But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. The NIV translation, I think, puts it this way. But Jesus would entrust himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in the heart of man. In Acts chapter 13, we don't have time to look at it today, verses 42 through 48 tells the story of the apostle Paul and his companion, Barnabas, and they were in the town of Pisidian Antioch, and we're told that they had gone into Pisidian Antioch, they had preached the gospel in that place, and we're told that the people were enamored. In fact, they, they, as they were leaving the synagogue on that day, this is every preacher's dream, by the way, every preacher's wife's nightmare, but as they're leaving the synagogue, having preached a sermon, the people come up to them and said, we've got to hear more of this, don't stop. This is the best sermon. Can you imagine that? I said that's every preacher's dream. You're up there in the pulpit and they're yelling, don't stop, don't stop. Most of the people are looking at this and some are going like this and wondering what in the world, why is he going on and on? 
It's every preacher's dream. And they said, you've got to come back next week. We need to hear more of this. And so we're told they went back the next week and we're told the whole synagogue was filled with people. And then we read this, and the Jews became jealous. The very people who had begged them to come back a week before are now jealous. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they got in there and somebody was sitting in their pew. That's the first reason. That's no exaggeration. The whole place was filled. I can't even find a seat. Who are all these people? That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. The leaders of the synagogue are jealous because, hey, we show up every Sunday, pour our heart out, preach, and nobody shows up. Then you bring in these hot shots from Jerusalem, and they come, and they preach, and lo and behold, everybody wants to hear them. And so we're told they were filled with jealousy and began to talk abusively against the apostles. And this is what the Apostle Paul said. Since you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We will now turn to the Gentiles. We're told they turned to the Gentiles. Now why was that significant? Because you'll notice here, when Jesus sent out the twelve, what did He say? Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritan villages. Go first, what? To the lost sheep of Israel. Paul and Barnabas, when they went out on that first missionary journey, the beginning of the missionary era, where did they go first? They went to the synagogue and preached the word. But the message that they preached was that you are not good enough. You are not worthy. You are not righteous. But there is a God who loves you in spite of that and longs to make you the very thing that you are not. And they took offense at that message. So they turned to the Gentiles and preached to the Gentiles, who the Jews regarded as what? uncircumcised dogs. You're nothing but dogs. You're wretches. You're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And what do they say? They say, we know that. And that's why we want this message so desperately. And the Scripture goes on to say, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a wonderful passage, by the way. We don't have time to go into it today. But it's the exact opposite of what we would expect, isn't it? We would expect that all who believed were appointed to eternal life, but it said all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you take offense at the message of the gospel? Do you take offense when the preacher climbs into the pulpit and says that you're sinners? Does it make you a little uneasy when you hear the preacher say that he's the foremost of sinners? What's your rector like? Oh, he's a terrible sinner. That make you uncomfortable a little bit? That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, let's see what we are. Let's not be fooled into thinking that people are better than they are. We are not all by nature good. If that were the case, why did Jesus come and have to die on the cross? We are not good, but here's the wonderful message. God loves us in spite of it. And He came down to make us good people by His grace. Now, let me just pause there for just a minute because I saw some hands going up. Sam, did you have a question or a comment that you wanted to make? I have a question. Doesn't God still want us to minister to the Jews? 
Yes, he does. Absolutely. Um, the question was, does God still want us to minister to the Jews? And the answer is yes. This is, has more to do with order than it has anything else. Um, the message was to go first to the Jews. And if you read through Paul's epistle to the Romans, here's, here's the marvelous part. Paul makes this very clear. God has not rejected the Jewish people. Now, there's been a long period of anti-Semitism, even in the life of the church, because many people have argued that the Jews crucified Jesus. Well, first of all, it wasn't the Jews. It was the Romans who actually did the deed. <laughs> and second of all, if you read through the New Testament, it becomes blatantly clear that we all crucified Jesus. And we still do it every time we sin. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in my class on the book of Acts uh, midweek. There's a great hymn in the church. I think it's number... Um, I can't think of the exact number, but it was written by Walter Russell Bowie, who was a professor at my old alma mater, Virginia Seminary. And it's called, Lord Christ, When First Thou Camest to Earth. And it has this wonderful line in it. It's not in the 1940 hymnal. It's in the 1982. But it's got this wonderful line in it. Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns by which they crowned thee. Now you say, they mocked thy saving kingship. Well, who's the they? Well, some might say it's the Jews. But the next stanza goes like this. And still our wrongs may weave thee now new thorns to pierce thy steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. Which is to say, every time you and I sin, every time we sin, we plait that crown of thorns and pierce his brow again. So as the old hymn says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, we were there. We were all there, and we do it daily. But it was a message that was to go first to God's chosen people, the Jews. Now, here's what Paul says in Romans. We're getting a little off track, but this is a good question, and it's important that we deal with it. Here's the amazing thing in Romans. God has a plan. He says, Paul says, God has not forsaken his people. Here's what God is going to do. This is history. God calls a particular people calls a particular man, first of all, Abraham, and through that particular man, he creates a nation, the nation of Israel. And through that nation, God brings a particular Savior of mankind to fix the problem that we're in. And that Savior is, of course, Jesus Christ, and he comes through the Jewish nation. His own people, what? Reject him. But here's the amazing thing about God. When God makes a covenant, it does not matter if we break our end of the bargain. God never breaks his end of the bargain. So God still has a plan for the Jews. So how's he going to flesh that out? How's he going to work it out? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to call a new Israel, a new chosen people, who are descendants of Abraham, but not by blood, but by faith. No, that's the church. That's the church. We are the now, the new Israel, the new descendants. And we are that, why? Because we believed as Abraham believed. God made a promise to Abraham. Your descendants shall be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand on the beach. And he made that promise to Abraham when? When Abraham was a young man, vital and full of life? No. We're told, I love the description. Who would like this description? This is the description of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. How, how many of you would like this on your tombstone? Sarah was well beyond childbearing age. That's the description we get of Sarah. 
What woman wants to be described? That's how you know. Who was Sarah like? Oh, she was well beyond childbearing age. <laughs> Who wants that? And Abraham, how's he described? The scripture describes him as being as good as dead. That's even worse. So the promise is made to them when what? She's well beyond childbearing age. He's as good as dead. But we're told they believe the promise. The true children of Abraham are not those who are the descendants by blood. It's those who have believed the promise. The promise of what? That through the line, through the descendants of Abraham, there would come a Savior. This is the new Israel. But here's the amazing thing. The promise is that in the last days, and I think this is borne out as you read through the epistle to the Romans, in the last days, God still has a plan for His chosen people, the Jews. And so what is He going to do? We Christians, now enjoying the blessed promises of God and the grace and the mercy that comes to sinners, will provoke the Jews to jealousy. And the promise is that in the last days there will be a great returning of God's ancient people to the message of the gospel and to an embracing of Jesus as the Savior of the world. And I think we're already seeing that happen. We're seeing completed Jews. We're seeing Messianic Jews. We're seeing Jews who are embracing Jesus Christ as the Savior. And we're seeing that in a way that is more explosive than at any period since the first century. And so in the end, Paul says, all of God's people... This is what Jesus said when he said, I have other sheep, not of this flock. Who are the other sheep? The Gentiles. And he's bringing them in, but he's not forgotten his own people. We are to live in such a way as the new Israel that we will provoke the ancient Israel to jealousy and they will turn, realize their sins and embrace the message of the gospel and God's whole family shall be gathered on that great day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I got one question for you. Who but God could think of that? Who but God could think of that? And that's what God is doing in history. We're seeing it more and more. Well, obviously, I've got a lot more to say here, but um, I've got about five minutes, and I don't want to launch into it um, because I do want to come back to this, this whole question about judging not. Um, when I was a kid growing up... Um, when the Pittsburgh Steelers, where I came from, and the Dallas Cowboys were always... Somebody said, boo. Whoever that person is, good for them. Um, but in those days, you know, when you would watch the Super Bowl and it was that great, you know, titanic conflict between those two teams, you would always see somebody hang out a banner that said John 3.16 on it. Every sporting event, somebody had John 3.16. When I was growing up, that was the most popular and the most famous Bible passage of all. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They did a survey recently. Do you know what the most popular biblical passage is today? It's this one. Judge not, lest ye be judged. That's the mantra, you see, of a politically correct culture. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Well, what exactly does that mean? Given the fact that Jesus says we should not entrust ourselves to anyone because we know what's in the heart of man, and furthermore, we know what's in our own hearts. Where does judge not, lest ye be judged fit into that? Come back next week and we'll take a look at it. 
and we'll figure that out. Because what Jesus is challenging us to do is to see ourselves clearly, but also to see others clearly. We may not judge, but we are to discern. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week, what it means to be a discerning people. Okay? Questions? Concerns? Yes. That's right. It's in Romans. Yeah. That's right. All of Israel includes the Jews and the Gentiles, the whole people of God. So that is another question entirely, and we'll have to take that up next week. What's that? If you remind me, I'll be glad to take it up. Absolutely. People ask me a lot of questions as I'm leaving here, and, and trust me, most things go out of my brain about five minutes later. So remind me next week, and I'll be glad to take it up. It's an important question. What about those who've gone before? We'll talk about that. Okay? All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll see you in church. And some of you will see this afternoon at the rectory. Um, we look forward to it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is a hard thing for us as human beings to see ourselves for what we really are. Many of us have lived, I know for years, I lived um, by wearing a mask, by appearing to be something other than what I was. But Lord, you came into this world. You are the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires know. You're the one from whom no secrets are hid. You see us for what we really are, and you love us in spite of us, in spite of our wickedness and our sin and our fallenness. Grant us the grace, Lord, to see ourselves for what we really are and to turn to you for mercy, for pardon, and for grace, that we may be a better people than we are, that we may live no longer for ourselves, but for your glory and honor. Take away, O oh Lord, our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.